Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff, and uh, we'll be uh, just jumping in in the, the whole series of Genesis that we're uh, working our way through. If you remember last week, uh, Darren started off with the Genesis 12, the first few verses of Genesis 12, and it was the story in the introduction of Abram, and it was the story of his faith in God, and that beginning concept of him having a conversation with God, and literally God calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And you remember that blessing, that concept that I want to bless you, you know, go to the land that I am going to show you, and I am going to have your family go on from generation to generation. There were a lot of promises in it. It was exciting stuff. It was great news. Everything was good about it. And so God stops and says, Abram, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And so Abram's like, that's great. You're going to bless me with many generations. I'm going to get this land and many blessings. This is awesome. And so Abram goes. That's like an easy thing to say yes to at that point. So Abram goes. Well, that was the first half of the chapter. And then you read the second half and it's not going to go as well. It, things kind of fall apart. But we want to take a look at it and understand a little bit of what's happening in this moment just from the concept of uh, when I first hear this story, I just think, what? He just gave away his wife? That's just crazy. Um, and the answer is yes, he did. But we want to put it a little bit in, into context and in perspective of everything that's happening in this moment. So even though God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and says, go into the land that I am going to show you, I'm going to give you that land and you're going to have generation after generation and I will bless you. This is all going to be great. But then right immediately, in fact, in verse 7, so coming up to this first part that we read last week, is this, this idea that as he goes into the land, there's somebody else already living there. So in verse 6, it says, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So it's like going up, somebody gives you a house and says, hey, I'm giving you that house. And you go up to see the house and you go up to the door to kind of walk through. But when you get there, there's somebody still living in the house. You're like, hey, that's not, this is not a house you can give away. There's somebody else in it. So it starts with that, that even as Abraham, Abram shows up in this land, there's someone else there. But then, as we jump into verse 10, it says, now there was a famine in the land. So this land that God gives to Abram, right off the bat as he journeys around, there's a famine, and it says in a, just a little bit later that this famine is so severe that they have to leave. So God gives them a land that's occupied by somebody else, and that it happens to be going through a severe famine, so nothing can grow, and you can't raise your, your, your flocks or anything else there, and he has to leave there. And so they start heading down towards Egypt. Um, verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live because they're going to take you and just have their way with you. 
So think about it again. Abram's going to a land that somebody else is living in. It's in the middle of a famine. And so he goes down to where there's water in the Nile River Delta. He's like, well, there's at least water down there. So he heads down there with his flocks, with everybody that he has. And as he's going, he realizes these are the Egyptians and the reputation of the Egyptians are such that they're powerful and they take whatever they want. They're gonna see his beautiful wife. And at that moment, they're gonna kill him. They have a reputation. They'll just slit his throat and that'll be that and we'll take Sarah. So at that point, that's where Abram stops and says, well, at least I could live if we lie about it. So now he adds the lie. He asks his wife to lie about it and goes down into Egypt and we get this whole story. This concept and what plays out is the, is the thing that happens again and again. Not that you give your wives away. I hope that doesn't happen again and again. But the idea that God sometimes meets us at a moment and we have this thing where we feel really good about what God just spoke to us about, that he's engaged with us and we're excited by that idea. And then along the way, something else happens. Life intervenes. It's like going to church and you hear a really good sermon and you're all fired up. But as soon as you walk out the doors, reality hits you in the face things start coming back into your world and it makes it so hard to go forward faithfully to the things that you heard earlier to now believe that those are real. Because the challenges and the pain and the hardships and the difficulties and the humanity of life comes in and faces us. That's what's happening to Abram in this moment. He's got this great promise. He's got the, the opportunity for blessings. But in the middle of all of that, he steps out into a reality that's far harder than just the simple little box of, oh, isn't it great to be blessed by God? And this is where we join Abram. In this moment, and who he's surrounded with, as you look at it, he's got a little bit of an audience around him. So not only is it just us reading this story, but his wife is watching him, his servants are watching him, likely Lot and all of his entourage are still with him. You remember, Lot had traveled out of Ur of the Chaldees with Abram. And so Lot is likely there with his family, Abram's there with his family, all of the servants, and then they get there, and now there's Egyptians there as well. There's all kinds of people that are watching this moment where Abram, for all practical purposes, just kind of disintegrates in his moral values and his ability to choose. But this idea of having an audience around you shows up in other places in scripture. And some of you may be thinking about the, that passage in Hebrews 12. And so if you've got your Bibles, just flip to Hebrews 12. And in verse 1, of Hebrews 12, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This idea is a, is a common idea that when we think about those around us, we oftentimes have this idea that we should perform differently because of who's there. Um, it's the idea of, of a morality by audience. It depends on who's in the room by the, time, by, um, by the moment we're making decisions, who we act out for. It might be one way for one crowd and another way for another crowd. We might say something different when our spouse is around. We might say different when our parents are around. We might act different when no one is around. 
So this idea of audience affects all of us, that we act certain ways based on who happens to be near us at the time. And Abram clearly acts a different way when God is speaking to him, and then he acts another way when it's Egyptians that surround him. So that concept of audience plays out again and again. But what I want you to see next is this idea that, that Abram does something that is true with all of us, is that we have faith, and faith does pretty well on its own, but once fear comes into our faith, fear becomes the enemy of faith. When we take our eyes off of God and we place it on those challenges around us, fear begins to erode our faith. And that's what happens with Abram in this moment. As he thinks about the difficulties that are facing him, as he thinks about what he is about to happen to his life, he starts to panic and he starts to take things on his own, on his own strength. He sees himself like, I'm going to have to navigate this in order to survive. In... Uh, in the Bible, there are over 103 times where it specifically says, fear not, or do not be afraid. It is one of the most repeated phrases all throughout scripture. The reason why, even when you think of like Joshua, when he first is handed the leadership of Israel after Moses is, is dead, that the thing that is said to him again is to um, be courageous. Fear not and be courageous, be courageous, have courage and be courageous. And it says it over and over again to Joshua. Why does it have to say it so many times? Because he wasn't courageous. If he was courageous, they would have never had to say it once, but they had to say it over and over again. Be strong and be courageous because fear was in Joshua's heart. And this story, fear is in Abram's heart. He's afraid he's about to get his throat cut. And so he gives away his wife. That concept is where the faith starts to, to tremble a bit, starts to shudder, starts to fail because fear has come in. Now, this idea of audience, though, um, it's, it's the concept of what happens in this moment. I'm going to go back to the Hebrews 12. So we read the first one about being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And verse 2, I want you to listen to verse 2 when it, it changes away from the audience of all of this crowd that surrounds us. And it says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That even though it mentions that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, it says, look to Jesus. When you think about an audience, have an audience of one. Don't be worried about the people that are around you. Don't be worried about what everybody else is gonna think. Go forward with an audience of one. This idea that what happens next for Abram is that as long as his eyes are left to those around him, he starts to act out of his own abilities because of the fear that's in his life. And he needs to have that focus on the Lord. Tim Keller says, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. It is not the strength of your faith, it is the object of your faith that saves you. It's not you, it's him. 
It's not what you're able to do through difficult times. It's that you have your eyes fixed on him and it is him who saves you. That concept is something that Abraham, he stops looking at God. In fact, if you read this passage, when we go from verse 10 to verse 20, there is no point in the entire passage where Abraham looks to God, calls out to God, prays to God, thanks God, asks God for anything. It's not there. Abram is doing things of his own flesh. He's doing things that he thinks he can manage, he thinks he can handle, and there's no interaction between him and God illustrated in these verses. That's a trouble, and it's that concept that that's why we look at Hebrews 12, because there it gives us that reminder to look to Jesus, and what it says there into looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Abram has this little step of faith where God calls out to him, God talks to him and says, go to the land that I am going to show you. So Abram says, okay, and he starts going. That's great, that's awesome. It's kind of a sunny day, it's beautiful, all things are easy and he starts to go. He exercises a step of faith, but this is the beginning of the faith. God is not done with Abraham, God is just beginning with Abraham in the first half of the chapter. The second half of the chapter is the school of faith for Abraham where God begins to strengthen his faith. God begins to build his faith. God is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's actively working in our lives to make us more faithful. He creates that faith in us. It is God doing this work in Abram as well. So this moment of looking to Jesus isn't just about Abram, it's about us looking to the founder and perfecter of our faith. And right there, Abram is looking at the Egyptians, he's fearful, and it causes some destruction. But here's the thing, all of us have these stories in our life where God has done just that. When you are in a moment where God is interacting with you, you think back of the times when God has met you at one point or another. Eugenie, Eugenie is my wife. Eugenie and I have been having conversations over the last few days because we've been talking about this passage and we've been talking about faith. We've been talking about God and what he does in our life. And so we've been reliving multiple stories, lots of stories of what God did at different, different stages of our life, of how he brought us together. I was I was going to school in San Diego and she was living in Chico, California. And for one particular weekend, we met at a, another remote location and we crossed paths and God brought us together in that one weekend. And we look at that and see how God orchestrated that moment. We went and relived so many more moments of the, the great things and the hard things in our life. So I'm gonna intersperse a couple of those stories throughout this message because there are times that actually where I saw God was the author and perfecter of my faith, where he was doing work in my life that strengthened my faith because of what happened. This concept is that you have those stories too, and I would hope that you would share those with your family and with others that you would be talking about it. But the first one is, is that um, we were up in the mountains at Hume Lake and we're on staff early on. And we, at that time, there was no... Uh, 
There was no internet. There was not even satellite TV. You didn't get TV. So we would listen on the radio if you wanted any other input in your life. And you could only get AM radio. So we would tune in to the Moody Bible Hour. And the Moody Bible Hour would always have these, these people on that were missionaries and different people like that. And over time, as we listened to it, we really felt like God was calling us into ministry in a, in a bigger way. And that in order to do that, we would have to go off to Bible college. So we felt like we needed to be obedient and we selected Multnomah Bible College University up in Portland, Oregon. The problem was we didn't have any money. So we couldn't afford college. And yet here was God saying, go, go to the college that I am going to show you. It was that kind of a thing. So we sold everything that we had, which wasn't much, just to have enough money to rent a U-Haul to take some of the a bed and a crib and things like that up to Portland so we could go to college. We didn't know where we were going to live or how we were going to afford rent, but a friend that had been up there said, look, we, we live above a funeral home and there's two apartments above this funeral home and you get free rent and utilities if you live above this funeral home and every other night and weekend you're on call, meaning you help people to visit their passed on loved ones or you go pick up bodies every other night and weekend, that kind of a thing. And they said, we're gonna be gone for a little bit of time and you can stay in our apartment until you find a place to stay. So we thought, that's all right, you know, a couple of weeks, that'll help us at least look for an apartment. So we pack all of our stuff up, we have hardly any money whatsoever, and we go up to Portland, and then we arrive around 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, and of the two apartments, our friends are gone, that's why we could stay in their place, and so we're getting ready to move into that place at 11 o'clock at night. The other couple comes out, and they say, hey, wait, 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 before you unpack anything, you, you need to know we're leaving tomorrow morning at six in the morning. If you just wait, you can have our apartment. And sure enough, the next day they moved out and we moved into a rent-free apartment, free rent, free utilities for all the time that we went to college. We didn't have to pay for anything to live there. We watch that and we stop and look at it and go, God, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know how this can possibly work, but we're willing to go. And so we went. And in that process, it wasn't something we did that made that work out. It was something God did. And suddenly we get a rent-free apartment with free utilities. Those stories live in your life as well. And they need to be rehearsed because that is God doing a work in you. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. And those stories should stack up. And along the way, they stack up here. They stack up in Abraham's life with this whole story of the Egyptians. God is not finished with Abraham yet. He is just starting. And the concept is, is your faith shouldn't be in you. Your faith shouldn't be in your abilities, how good you are, how strong you are, how wonderful you are, how much you know the Bible, or how much you're a prayer warrior, or how much you have done anything in life. The concept is, is God is the one at work in you, perfecting your faith. There was a, another thing that um, happened in our life while we were at Hume was, uh, at one point in time, there, there was an environmental group that was trying to turn the entire area around Hume Lake into a giant sequoia wilderness um, area. 
And by wilderness area, it means nobody can be there. It no roads, no trails. Well, Hume has roads and trails and cabins and swimming pools and dining halls and chapels. That's not wilderness, by the way. And so this act that the environmentalists were doing is they had presented it to Congress, Congress had picked it up, and a local congressman by the name of George Brown had decided to do this thing. And because it was an election year, all the rest of the congressmen and senators had all decided, hey, we get a little green sticker on our voting record if we vote for this. It only affects one small congressional district. So the rest of the country was all excited to save the giant sequoias. So they said, this is a done deal. It's gonna go through committee. And once it passes committee, we'll vote on it and it'll become law and Hume Lake will have to cease to exist. So at that point, I was doing a bit of writing and they came to me and they said, will you write a video to to tell the world about this and answer it? And I started doing homework on the the whole bill and realized where it was at in committee and Congress. And I went back to the board of directors and I said, you don't need a video. You have to go to Congress. This thing's about to pass. It's about to be a done deal. You've got to intervene on a whole other level. So they said, okay, you're going to Washington. And I didn't even have a suit or tie. They literally the next day took me out to buy a suit and tie. And then from there, I went to Washington and the process is, is you go into this hearing, the hearing that's about to pass this thing. And I get invited in to testify before the, the, the House subcommittee on the, pro- the whole process. And everybody's talking. There's environmentalists that are talking and there's um, logging interests, timber companies that are talking. There's different people that are speaking about the bill. But it's pretty much just talking heads. It's not gonna go anywhere. This bill is gonna pass. And then it's time for me to speak. And as I come up to the table, there's this table, it's got a green light on it, says it's time to talk. And then that light will turn yellow, meaning you got one minute left and then it goes to red and you have to stop. And so I know I have this limited amount of time where the pressure's on that somehow I'm supposed to say something that is going to save Humalay Christian camps. And I don't know what I'm gonna say. I've heard everybody else just kind of talk on. And literally the congressmen are coming and going. They're going off to votes and they're in and out and they're not even paying attention. And I'm thinking this is a whole waste of time. There's no way this is gonna affect any change at all anywhere. And as I sit there, I'm about ready, just before the light goes to green, the chairman of the committee stops and says, I have to exit to go vote on another bill right now. So I'm gonna ask Congressman George Brown, the guy who wrote the bill and wanted this to pass, to be the chairman in my absence. So my time, I get to say all the things I don't like about the bill to the guy who wrote the bill. So that guy leaves, George Brown sits down in the chair, the light turns green and it's like the Lord stops and says, here, here you go. And I'm thinking, this, this whole thing, what is going on? This is craziness. And I began to talk and God put words in my mouth and he said things that I didn't even have written down. And he spoke through that moment. And right as the light turned to red and he stopped speaking, George Brown stopped and said, Mr. Lilly, and this is in the congressional record. He said, Mr. Lilly, he says, I love everything that you said. I agree with everything you said with except the fact that you disagree with my bill. And on that day, he pulled the bill out of committee and killed the bill. I'm sitting there like, how does that happen? How does that happen? Because God intervenes. 
God steps and God is doing something. It's not about us. It's not about what we're capable of doing. It's what he's capable of doing. It shows up in this story in verse 17. Take a look at it. Back to Genesis and Genesis 12, verse 17. This is the only time the Lord is mentioned in this part of the passage. And it says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So at this moment, all this stuff that Abram's done has done nothing but make things worse. And now he's no longer with his wife. His wife has ended up being passed from the Egyptians who first saw her to now to the Egyptian princes who they look at her and they hand her to Pharaoh and think about what's going on in her world. Her husband just gave her away. Two people that slit your throat. That's a great husband. There's our man of faith for you. It's not about Abram's ability, it's what happens next as she goes from place to place and now she's in this house, in Pharaoh's house, this palace, and at that moment, God intervenes. God shows up and God afflicts Pharaoh and all of his house and Sarai watches as this spreads throughout Pharaoh's family and suddenly Pharaoh stops and brings her out and takes her over to Abram and says, what are you doing to me? And gives his wife back, says, go, get out of here. That moment left in a couple of words, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. This is what God does in this moment. One verse undoes all of the days of missteps by Abram. That even when we make mistakes, even when we fall short, even when we feel like we're just flailing and trying to make sense of our life, God stops and engages and intervenes and takes things and makes them the way he would have them to be. Darren often talks about our vision pillars here at the church and one of them is that radiant peace is rooted in confident expectation. That's this idea played out, that radiant peace, the idea to have peace in the middle of a difficult time is rooted in confident expectation and the confidence that God himself, the expectation that God himself will show up, that God is there, that God has his hand on all of this. And if God is there, then we can be at peace. And that a world that's facing all kinds of confusion, what they need to see more from us is a radiant peace, a peace that radiates out because we're at peace that God has control over what is happening in the world. That's the concept as we look at this, as it plays out, that God intervenes and shows up in Sarai's behalf and Abraham's. Now, yesterday was 9-11, this 20th anniversary. I don't know that you could have missed that. It was everywhere. It was in the news. It was people talking about it. If you haven't gone over to the house that's, that's over in downtown Fullerton that has the memorial set up, they have two twin towers on the lawn with flags for every single person who has lost their life because of 9-11. It's a beautiful thing. But there's one particular story that, came to, that, that I came upon just the last couple of days. And it's the story of a young gal in her 20s. Um, her name was Janelle. She was working on the 64th floor of the North Tower. And as she's working, the, the plane hits above them. They're all in a panic about what to do. They don't know what to do. They're still there on the floor. When the second plane hits the other tower, they decide we need to get out of here. They start down from the 64th floor taking the stairs. 
is they go down the stairs, stair level after level. They get down to about the 13th floor. She's wearing heels and she's starting to get blisters on her feet. And so she stops and takes off her shoes. And as she's taking off her shoes, the building begins to rumble and then the roof and the walls and everything begin to cave in. As the building goes down, she doesn't even have a sense of falling because she's just feeling the concrete on top of her. The building collapses, we know those pictures, we've seen those images, but for Janelle, she goes down with this concrete and she finds herself trapped. She is laying there completely compressed by the concrete. Her head cannot move, it is literally jammed on both sides of her head. Her leg is crushed, her arms are are bruised and scraped and she can barely move her arms just a little bit and that is all. She hears for a few minutes other people crying faintly and then those voices grow silent. She cries out a little with no response and she realizes this is it, it's over. I'm gonna die in a pile of rubble. For 27 hours she laid there. Janelle is not a believer, she's not a Christian and at this moment in time she stops and realizes there's nothing I can do about this moment and she stops and she cries out to God, God, if you are there, please hear me now. God, I need help. Shortly after that, she hears a voice. And the voice says, Janelle, I need you to put your your hand up, put your arm over your head and reach out to me. She can't look, she can't see the voice. She's trying to wonder, have I said my name? She's not said her name to anybody, but there's a voice that's saying, Janelle, put your arm up and reach out. So she slides her arm up and as she reaches out, a hand grabs her hand and says, Janelle, I've got you. It's gonna be okay. I've got you. And she's trying to figure out who this is and and thinking it must be a rescuer. But those 27 hours go on. This individual stays with her for a couple more hours. And then right towards the end, he stops and says, Janelle, I need you to cry out. I need you to start asking for help. Just start asking for help. And so she starts crying and she says, help, someone please help me, help me. And in that moment, firefighters hear her voice and they were right at where she was and they began to remove the rubble. And as they remove the rubble, they find Janelle. There's no one else there. This is Janelle's story. She stops and she cries out to God and she has somebody meet her there. But when the rescuers come, they find no one. Janelle, 20 years later, has had somebody be the author and perfecter of your faith. Do you see that? It wasn't Janelle going, I'm going to be a strong Christian. It was God himself coming into her life and saying, I am going to meet you there. I am going to intervene in your behalf. Oh, and hard days for so many others around her, hard days for her. She almost lost her leg, multiple surgeries, and they thought they were gonna have to amputate, but they were able to save it. That's a great story for Janelle, but what about everybody else? What about everybody else in the famine? What about all of us who are living with hardship and difficulties in our life now? We know that life is tough. And in these moments, the one thing that we get out of a story like this is the idea that the worst thing we could do is the thing that we would do. The worst thing we can do is to think that we're able, that we're capable, that somehow we're gonna be able to rise above this. We're gonna be able to navigate the challenges that are in our life. 
In this story, it is so clear that Abram's tactics are only destroying his life and making it worse. What turns the story is God stepping in. And when Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter, the, the, the one who builds our faith, this is the concept. I'm a man of faith. My life is built out of so many stories that it was really difficult to pick one or two because it's watching God do it again and again. Write those down, journal them, share with friends. Today, while you're around the lunch table, have these conversations about the stories where God showed up for you. True faith doesn't rest in our character. True faith isn't because of how great we are. True faith is rooted deeply in the character of God and who he is. That's what it's all about. Abraham thinks he is capable. The audience watches. Everybody sees this. Everybody God, sees God intervene. Abram sees it. Sarai sees it. The Egyptians see it. Lot and his family see it. The servants see it. Everybody sees what God does and compares it to what Abram does. That concept is the idea of a great cloud of witnesses. The idea that there are others watching you and how you respond and allowing God to be the one that intervenes in your behalf. The one that's there in the middle of this. Um, some of you know that, that, that I'm a writer and so just to kind of wrap up all these thoughts that sometimes I'll do that, just write out the words to kind of deal with what I'm struggling with. So we talk about this story, it kind of goes all over the place. So I'm just gonna read it. And it's simply entitled, Our God is Able. Because in the middle of it, we stop and look at who Abram is. And Abram is not able, but God is. Our God is able. He is able to create the world and he is able to flood it and able to drain it away again. He is able to confuse languages as Babel and to bring understanding on the day of Pentecost. He is able to create famines and Egyptians, camels, donkeys, and the Nile River Delta. He is able to feed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and a widow and her son and Elisha too. He is able to equip a shepherd boy to face a giant. And he is able to bring other shepherds face to face with his own little boy. God is able. He is able to stop the sun in the sky. He is able to send his fire down from the same. And he is able to appear in someone else's fire when Shadrach and the boys in Babylon would not bow. He stops the mouth of lions and he opens the mouth of whales. He is able to make wine out of water and to walk on water when everyone else whines. He is able to make the blind to see, the leper clean and the lame to rise up. He casts out the demon and he is able to make the dead come to life. And he is alive, risen from the dead for all of eternity, victorious to sit at the right hand throne of the father. That God, that God is able. For from his own scriptures, it says that he is able to help those who are tempted. He is able to make all grace abound toward you. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. He is able to establish you according to his gospel, his good news. And he is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. In this story about Abram, the father of our faith, Abram is not able. Abram is not to be trusted. It's God. God is able. 
God does more in one verse than Abram, Sarai, Pharaoh, the princes, servants, donkeys, camels, or all of Egypt combined. God is actively building and perfecting your faith. And he, above all else, is able to complete the work that he has begun in you. Our God is able. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Let's pray. Lord, this concept of my own inabilities, of my own weaknesses, of of the times when I face challenges and get distracted by things and fear is so close to my heart. I feel, I feel like Abraham at times. And Lord, I'm so grateful that you have given a man like Abraham as our example, a man who fails, a man who faces difficulties and challenges, a man who becomes afraid of what is confronting him, of the difficulties in his life. But Lord, you step in again and again and intervene in our lives and you continue to shape us through those difficulties. You begin to teach us about your glory, about your greatness. And Lord, even today, as we simply wrap up a day in church, we showed up because we need to hear from you. We showed up because we want to know of you. Lord, we showed up today because we want you to continue to perfect our own faith, to be the author, the founder, the builder, the creator of the men and women of God who are in this room, that we might indeed proclaim your glory by what you have done in our life. Lord, not that what we have done, but what you are doing and what you will do. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.